So kids, we'll release in just a second. Hang out here for a minute because I want you to uh, listen to a song or two. So we're doing a series on the seven deadly sins, and Gray preached for me last week, and he started us off with greed, and he started off with the Queen song, I Want It All. And that got me thinking, and this could be a terrible idea, but I started thinking, what if we did, like, what is the soundtrack for the seven deadly sins? And we might get in a lot of trouble down the road as we progress, but uh, is there a cultural song that embodies, like, pride? And so, so this actually turned out to be a lot harder than I thought, but I took some clips off my phone. So Eli's going to try and play. Right, so the, the first, this was the first song that came to mind when I started thinking about pride. So sing along if you know it. So there's somebody who, they're not too proud to beg, so we're not too proud. So that's not really it. That's kind of the opposite. And then in that genre, I started thinking about, all right, maybe it's this song. Could this be the song to embody pride? Closer to Pariah's now, it's going to fade out, but I mean, we don't want to disrespect the queen, so we need to give her the last word, so we'll let uh. to a song to embody pride. Just want a little respect. That's it. Respect. That's all I need. All right, now for this third song, actually, kids, you can get up and you can walk back during this, this third song because uh, this next one, uh, we'll stay in the same genre. And I'm starting to think maybe this embodies the spirit of pride more than any other. This is, uh, this is old Blue Eyes. So let's listen to him. I did it for what is a man? What has he got if not himself?
I told Cynthia I was going to sing along, and she said, I have to stay in there for that. That'll be the funniest thing I've ever seen. But I didn't have the courage. But think about the words. So for what is man, what has he got? If not himself, then he is not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. Let the record show I took the blows, but I did it my way. I did it my way. And I wonder if that's getting a little closer to the soundtrack of pride that's playing in every single one of our hearts. All I want, just a little, little respect, just want to do it. No matter what, I will do it my way. And so we're walking through the seven deadly sins because in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says to stand your ground against Satan's strategies. And these are seven primary strategies that he's going to use to try and destroy you. And so we're looking at case studies. And this morning, we're going to look at the case study of Haman. And so Haman's story comes from the book of Esther. So Esther is a... Uh, book. So if you got one of the Pew Bibles or want to follow along, we're going to take three snapshots from his life to try and illustrate uh, pride, his battle with pride. And uh, Esther is, so if you open up your Bible to the Psalms and then go back towards the beginning, a couple books over, you'll find Esther. It's a small book. It's a complicated, complex, and comical book. It's a story about a young girl who finds herself orphaned in a foreign land where she ends up one of the wives of one of the most powerful men in all of history. And in this male-dominated society, she's able to be an agent for justice um, it's a story about God's people living in a religiously, as a religious minority in a very pagan culture where everything that's happening all around them is tempting them to lose their unique sense of identity and who they are. They're constantly under threat and under persecution, and many are hiding and are afraid, and all the social structures they depended on for their faith are being stripped away, and it's what do you do in this morally ambiguous situation? story about how to be faithful in the middle of those things. It's a story in which, interesting enough, God's name is never explicitly mentioned, but his activity is everywhere underneath the surface. And one of the big themes in this book is also what we're going to look at this morning. It's a story about how devastating, unchecked pride can be on you and your community. And so Haman's story, he's the the antagonist of the book. He's the villain of the book. And his story is really a story about pride gone unchecked. So what happens? And we need to remember as we look at this, you know, there is some debate. It would be interesting as I'll start to bring out some of the history of the seven deadly sins. Because even that concept doesn't come from the Bible. Um, It comes from 2,000 years of kind of pastoral counsel as wise spiritual directors are helping people fight their sin and become more Christ-like in their life. And they realize that a lot of these struggles that people have everywhere are universal, And so it kind of grew out of the Egyptian monks in the African desert, trying to help one another become more godly and realizing we all struggle with these things. And there was some debate between the monks. Is pride one of the seven or is it the fuel that fuels all seven? So either way, it's at the very heart of the things that can destroy us. Augustine thought it was the fuel that fueled every other sin. He said, remember, it was pride that made the devil the devil. It's what makes him the devil. So we're going to look at pride. And for Haman and for us, this really is a matter of life and death. Because with each of these, the goal is to bring you to a place that destroys you. And we're going to look at it in three different ways, just very simply. All right, what what pride is, what it does, and then how you cure it. 
How can you kill it? How can you fix it? But with what it is and what it does, we need to look. In one sense, this is really, we're, we need to do spiritual diagnosis. So we're going to diagnose the patient, which is us, and we're going to look, all right, what it is is kind of the internal treatment. Like, what are the symptoms that are happening in your own heart as pride is raging? And then what it does, how does it manifest itself externally in your life? And so as we look at these things, you can kind of keep, uh, you know, if you have them in the bulletin, it'll be helpful. Just follow along. Because when we see what it is, it's always comparing, always calculating, always consuming. That's what's going on in you. And then what it does, it makes you a fraud, it makes you fragile, and it makes you foolish. And then if you're going to find victory over it, you've got to kill it. You've got to clothe yourself with something else, and you've got to cultivate humility. So let's pick up the story of Haman. So I'm going to read from a couple different cha- uh, chapters in Esther, some snapshots from his life. And so starting in chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agiite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of any other noble. And all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. Now, Haman was a foreigner in the king's court. He had worked his way up. He had been elevated to the second highest position in all of Persia. And at this time, the Persian Empire is the, the largest, strongest, baddest empire in the entire world. So he, had, he was, in essence, a self-made man who'd worked himself up to the very top. But in chapter 2, he actually was taking credit for something that someone else had done. So he had been able to elevate him by pushing other people's down and taking credit for something that actually Mordecai had done. He took the credit for That's what caused his elevation. So then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command by not bowing down to him? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman uh, about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he was told that he was a Jew. And so remember, he's from, he's an uh, Agiite who goes back to, they were the people that when the Israelites were fleeing or uh, leaving Egypt and wanted to pass through the promised land, they wouldn't let them through. And they've been uh, kind of mortal enemies with God's people ever since. And then when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all of his people, the Jews, throughout the entire kingdom. Now let's fast forward to chapter 5, starting in verse 9. So there's been a... um, uh, Esther has gone and created this banquet. Uh, Haman's been invited as a special guest of honor for her. And Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. And when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth and his many sons and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, he added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king at the banquet she's giving. And she has invited me with among, to be among the king tomorrow. In all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. And this suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. Then six, but that night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles to be read 
of his reign and to be brought in and read to him. And he found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway and had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. Then the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole. And his attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. And when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? That's the key question running. That's the key theme of the whole book. What should be done for the man, the woman, the person the king delights to honor? Or who is the type of person that the king delights to honor? What should be done for the man the king delights? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on his head. And then let the robe and horse be entrusted to the one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what's done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So here is Haman in a classic case of pride gone, gone unchecked. So as we look at this, all right, what can we learn? Because one of the, the, the realities is that the difference between him and us is not in um, the differences in degree, not reality. So what lives in him lives in us all. So let's think about, all right, what is pride? What's going on in your heart as pride is fueling? And one thing pride is always doing is it's making you always comparing, always calculating, always consuming. C.S. Lewis has a fabulous little chapter in Mere Christianity on pride and humility. He talks about pride is this relentless focus on the self. It's this relentless, you're, you're, it's nonstop, sleepless ego calculation. How am I doing? How am I being perceived? How am I being noticed? You know, we were made, you know, another image, we were made to be like sunflowers. Who we, we look away from ourselves and find our light and life in the sun, and that's how we grow and thrive. But as long as we turn inward... Um, we can't find life there. But that's pride is that internal turn where we're constantly looking inward. And a couple of just unique things about Haman's story to, to illustrate. Now, he had kind of elevated himself to the highest place of political power in this kingdom. But you notice in chapter 3 and verse 2, the king had to command people to bow down to him. Now, think about that for a second. So some of you come from more traditional cultures, you know that bowing is a sign of respect. You always bow to the people who are above you in age or above you in social status. It would be an incredible slap in the face not to bow to someone who is above you in social status or age. And yet, in this world, the king has to command people to bow to Haman. That means they didn't do it naturally. They didn't want to do it. So he must have been this uh, especially just obnoxious person that people didn't even want to give the, the common courtesy of the day. And so when he sees that Mordecai refuses, he rages. 
Because he knows that uh, what he wants more than anything else is honor, respect. And he knows he doesn't have it. And the reason why he doesn't have it and Mordecai refuses is because he got his position of power through what Mordecai had exposed. So he, told, he, he in essence, stole um, the good work that Mordecai had done and claimed it for himself. So here's someone, he, he had the power, he had the wealth, but he didn't have the respect. And that's what he wanted. And, and, and Satan was able to latch on to that. And that became the cancer in his soul that brought about his own demise. He's always comparing. You know, it's one of the things C.S. Lewis talks about how pride is. How pride is something that will cause you not to get any satisfaction out of the thing. But it's always about having more than the next person. So pride has, in essence, no satisfaction of uh, out of being beautiful, you just want to be more beautiful that you just just be the prettiest person in your homeroom class. So it's comparative. You're always looking and comparing. And this actually fuels envy. So in a couple of weeks when we're talking about envy, this is actually what's fueling the envy. And there's just fascinating studies to show how envious we are as a people are. It's like H.L. Mencken, who was writing in the 1920s, uh, said, contentment in America is making $10 more than your brother-in-law. It's always comparing, always looking, but it's also always calculating. See, our minds become these gigantic, almost like servers, where we're constantly running calculations about how are we doing? Are we being noticed? Are we being appreciated? Are we being respected like we think? Because it's turning everything into a means to an end. So for Haman, like public service was not an end in itself. He wanted honor, praise, and respect. And so what pride does, is it actually objectifies things and people. So you're using them to fill yourself. That's how it consumes. Because pride can open up this, it's almost this black hole of the soul that needs people's respect and admiration and praise to fill it. And so it's, it's consuming, but it's always calculating. See, the, uh, the desert fathers who would distinguish all the different nuances of pride would say one of the most subtle forms of pride is vainglory. So vainglory is the idea of um, you, in essence, don't want something good. It's always something good, but you don't want the thing for itself. You want the fruits of it or to be seen as that. So you could see it, you know, when American Idol was in its heyday, it was always so interesting to see because it was so obvious, like, the kids who just wanted to be a star. Like, I just want to be famous. And then the kids who just love music. And there's a huge difference between the two. And often you can't actually tell in the performance. But vainglory is the idea, I just want to be a star. But don't underestimate how subtly that works in every heart and every soul. Like, I want to be thought more intelligent than I really am. I want to be thought more competent than I really am. I want to be thought like I have it more together than I really do. You know, there's such a deep desire in every heart, and it's just tugging us to be praised, to be noticed, to be seen as smarter, kinder, holier, more competent, more capable than we really are. 
I've been spending a lot of times reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm becoming convinced that Matthew's Gospel was written as a, almost a ministry manual for the Lord's servants to carry out the work of building his church and kingdom. And it's so fascinating as the, one of the threads that run through it, through it all is Jesus is so almost savage in attacking religious hypocrisy of people who practice their righteousness to be seen. And this is the temptation. This is the, you know, the, the desert fathers would say every single person who's in Christian ministry needs to wrestle with the reality about how deeply you desire to be seen as more holy than you actually are. Or you practice. And, you know, the tendency was, all right, how do you kill pride? Well, you just need to pray more. Or you need to read your Bible more. But it's so subtle and sinister, it can actually turn prayer into a means of exalting your own pride. That's what Jesus said. Don't pray to be seen by people. You can actually pray in such a way where you're just, where you're just doing it to be seen. And it's so subtle. And so I kind of open up. Here's one of the challenges of being, you know, one of my occupational hazards is that when you're a professional Christian, people expect you to be good at praying and they ask you to do it. So every person, we go over to your house for dinner and then either you'll say, oh, pastor, pray for us. And one of the subtle things is, oh, it's got to be good. It's my job. I'm a professional prayer. And that subtle temptation to fire up as I need to perform. And think about how it is in your life and your work. You have all these subtle temptations that are constantly bombarding you. I got I to gotta perform. This has got to be good. I'm the person who has all the answers. It's my job to be the problem solver. I, I have to know. And so it's subtle. It can get in us. We're always uh, calculating. We're always comparing. And then always consuming and one of the things that pride will fuel this hole in your soul where you're constantly looking at everything from the angle of you that's what Haman was doing everything from the perspective of him there's a fascinating book called the pursuit of attention where sociologist Charles Derber is a sociologist at Boston University and his the research team they wanted to study conversational dynamics among people and so they were studying, uh, they studied uh, 1,500 conversational interactions. And uh, he actually got really depressed after uh, the research because his conclusion was that all Americans without fail are conversational narcissists. We do not know how to uh, eagerly and energetically or even at all talk about other people. Like, we don't know how to enter conversations that either is not about us or things we like. And what he found out is the conversational narcissism generally takes two turns. So somebody would prompt you and say, oh, I'm thinking about getting a new car. Oh, really? I'm thinking about getting a new car, too. Here's what I'd like. And you, you turn it on yourself. And then, uh, and then he said another way that's actually just as prominent is, is so you kind of have like two versions of conversational narcissism. One is when people say something and you just bombard them with you. And turned it all on you. So it's like the Brian Regan skit, the me monster, who they're just a me and they turn, you know, consume all conversations. And, uh, but he said, actually, one of the most subtle forms is almost like the introverted version. So people say, hey, I'm thinking about getting a new car. Huh. Yeah, I would really like to drive a, I, I'm thinking about getting a Mustang. Huh, nice. And where you just shut it down. You don't even, you're not even interested to even explore further. That's kind of like, that's, that's still conversational narcissism. And what he says is this is constantly going on in all of us. And we all do this. We all do in a sermon. So that's one of the things happening internally at Pride. All right, what's happening at, at externally? What does it do? 
One of the things is pride makes you a fraud. And see, Haman knew he was a fraud, but he was so fearful to being exposed. And so then he has to go farther and farther and become more boisterous and try and make himself bigger because he didn't want to be exposed. And every single person who's any type of intellectual field, or if you found success in anything, you're going to know the temptation of not wanting to be exposed as a fraud. I don't know anyone who has their PhD who secretly is not afraid of being exposed as a fraud. Because people look at you and say, oh, they have, their, they have their PhD. They must be smart. And everyone else knows, well, not really. One of the things that actually opens up for you is how little in the world you actually know and can conceive with your mind. And so we're afraid to be thought. And so you medical students, like you have to not only prepare your mind to do the proper do- diagnosis so you can learn your skill. But one of the biggest challenges you're going to have in your life is people are going to come to you and expect you to save them. Like, they're going to come to you and not give you any information, just say, my life is terrible, my body is broken, fix me, and then use your medical wizardry and gadgets and gizmos and take my blood and tell me what's wrong, so I just assume you're omniscient, and then be, you know, uh, all-powerful to heal me. And one of the, the biggest dangers you're going to have to fight is to actually think that's true. And anybody in any service industry... One of the biggest dangers we fight is actually believe that we're the ones who can fix things. I think it's one of the reasons John the Baptist's mantra was, I am not the Christ. Because he had such subtle temptation to believe he was really something, somebody. We were at a meeting on global health, and I love one of the guys who was director at a hospital in Africa. They had the sign that said, we treat Jesus heals. I thought, that's just good balance. We treat Jesus heals. If you're in any service, or you can do this in any sphere. It's how codependent enabling relationships happen in any realm. Because um, we're trying to fix these things. So pride will fuel you to pretend you're something you're not. It also makes you fragile. And one of the sad things about this story, do you notice in chapter 5, Haman starts rattling off all his accomplishments. He's like, I've got all the wealth, all the sons, all the position, all the power. I've got everything. And it leaves me no joy. I have no joy. All his vast wealth, his many sons, all his political honors, he gets no satisfaction out of any of them. And his joy is so fragile that one little slight from a man standing outside the king's palace is going to bring his entire world crashing down. You know what it is to have such fragility of heart? Where, you know, Haman needs not just, he has 99 things. He's winning at 99 things and is losing at one and it ruins his entire life. And it's so fragile. But then think about your own soul. Like how fragile is your stability? How fragile is your joy? Can it withstand uh, just a small criticism from a coworker or a small inconvenience and somebody cutting you off on I-4? Is your composure so fragile? You know, one of the beautiful gifts of the gospel is that in this world, like, notice the math. 99 things he's winning, one he's losing, he comes down. But the gospel math is if you have this one thing, even 99 things come down and you can still have joy. 
Compare Haman to the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul in Philippi was uh, unjustly accused of a crime he didn't commit. He was publicly shamed and humiliated, physically beaten, thrown into prison, and denied his rights as a Roman citizen. And what is he doing? He's got 99 things that are all going poorly. And yet in prison, he's able to sing songs of worship and praise. He still has a joy that even all of those things can't take and can't break. Because that's the gospel math. In this world, you got 99 things going right. One thing goes wrong. It ruins you. But with the gospel, if you have this one thing, Christ in you, the hope of glory, then 99 things can go wrong and you can still stand and you can still be strong. Your joy is solid and stable. But notice for Haman, it makes him foolish. He starts to scheme and plot and do all of these schemes to try and bring the downfall of his enemy. And part of the deep irony of the story that we didn't read is he erects this giant pole that he's going to have Mordecai then publicly hung on the pole to disgrace him and all of his people. And then it's going to lead to an attack, open season, to hunt down and try and exterminate the Jews. And then once the plot is found out and foiled, Haman himself is actually the one who was executed on the poles that he erected to kill Mordecai. But it makes him foolish because all of his scheming um, is what leads to his downfall. And he doesn't learn because when, you know, pride will keep you from learning from your own mistakes. The greatest gift God will give you is for you to fail and then you can learn from them. But if you're too proud, you won't ever actually learn from them. You'll always make excuses, blame shift, say it's him, it's her. So this is something that runs deep in all of us. So how can we fix it? Where does the cure come from? How can we kill it? You know, we think about how pride, because we'll really see how in so many ways it fuels so many of the other bitter fruits of sin in our life. Things like bitterness. One of the reasons why we get bitter and become resentful is because we're so proud. We think we deserve better and we're not getting our due. Or one of the fruits of it is anxiety. One of the reasons we can be anxious is because we're so proud. We think we know better than God how our life should go, and he's not getting it right. So we get anxious, and it can fuel hypocrisy. You know, it's interesting how pride can fuel, it can fuel like Haman an overconfidence, where you become foolish, but then it can also fuel an over-cautiousness, um, where you refuse to act because you think it's got to, if I do anything, it has to be perfect, and I'm paralyzed because I can't do anything. So it'll, it'll, it can cause us... Uh, Difficulty and destruction in, in, in multiple ways. So if we're going to actually conquer it, you know, there's three things we need to do. You've got you to kill it. You have to cultivate the virtue, and you have to clothe yourself. See, in Esther, there's just a couple of echoes, a couple of hints, a couple of just these beautiful foreshadowing that's going to point us to a direction of, all right, where can the ultimate pride be destroyed? And two of the echoes in this story are you've got to look to the pole and look to the robe. Look to the pole and look to the robe. See, here in Esther, you see this incredible great reversal. So all of God's people are down. The proud have lifted themselves up to destroy them. And then there's this great reversal where the proud, the humbled are exalted and the proud are are thrown down. And see, the problem in Esther is that Haman is a servant who is exalting himself to be the king. And when servants exalt themselves to try and be kings, it brings death and destruction. 
But the path of life comes not from servants trying to be kings, but it comes from the king who willfully became a servant. See, where pride dies is you have to look to the cross. Just as the pole was put up and the guilty was put on the pole, we look to the cross, and the cross is the place that actually the innocent king was crucified for all of the guilty servants. And so the cross is actually his way to destroy pride. So he might go back and listen and say, all right, if you really want a theme song for how to kill pride, uh, those songs might have been on the right track, but need to point a little different one. He might switch Frank Sinatra's song and say, let the record show. I took the blows. I did it my way. This is my way of bringing your life, the great reversal. I bore the penalty you deserve so you can have the honor you didn't. I actually lost all R-E-S-P-E-C-T. I lost it so you can find the honor. I lost the honor I was due so you could find the honor you weren't. I was not too proud to bleed so that you can then find life. This is his way, and the cross kills our pride, and then it brings humility. And so much as the image of the cross, that's where pride dies, but also the image of the robe. Because on the cross, the thing that Haman wants is, he, I want to be dressed like the king. Put the robe on me, because the whole point is that then when they see me, they no longer see me, they see him. And so when I walk, all the honor that is due the king comes my way. And when they see me, they don't see me anymore. They see the king. And one of the beautiful exchanges that happens on the cross when we confess our sins is that God removes from us our filthy robes of unrighteousness and put it on Jesus on the cross. And then by faith, he puts the perfect righteousness of the Son on us, and we are now dressed in his righteousness alone. That's why we sing, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless I stand before the throne. So the beauty of the gospel is now when by faith, when they see us, they no longer see us, they see him. When God sees us, he doesn't look at us, he looks at us dressed in the robes of his son. See, in one sense, Haman didn't desire the wrong thing, he was just looking in the wrong place for it. And so we'd be clothed with his righteousness. And what that does is it actually frees us. Once we're clothed, we can be free from the need to compare, to calculate, to consume. We can be free. And then what uh, the, the, the resurrection pattern is that in our life, slowly pride has to die so humility can rise. And as humility rises in us, we become free. Become the freest people on the planet. You know, real humility. And as C.S. Lewis says in that article, you know, real humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. Where you're, you're, you're just not at the center of your thoughts. Pride is this obsessive me at the center. And then humility is the beautiful releasing where you can look away and look out. You know, he says, if you ever met a real humble person, you wouldn't come away thinking, oh, that person is so humble. You know, they never made eye contact and they were, you know, bowing down in deferential uh, treatment. You wouldn't think they were humble. You would actually think they're joyful. You say, wow, that's a happy person. Wow, they're really interesting. Or you might even feel affirmed because they asked about you and, and tried to get to know you as a person. 
And so real humility is really the power of self-forgetfulness. So how do, you, how do you get this into your life? A couple things. You've got to look away from yourself. You turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and then things of this earth, you, will grow strangely dim because you'll see something bigger, something better, something more beautiful. See, a healthy soul, it's kind of like a healthy body. You know, if your body's healthy, you really don't notice, like, your wrist or your back or your knee. It's only when there's, it's, you have a problem that you notice. And in a healthy soul, you just don't really notice yourself. You notice other people. So how can you cultivate this? A couple of verses to think about with that thing. Who does the man or woman, the king, delights to honor? Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. But I also dwell with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. I revive the spirit of the lowly. I revive the heart of the humble. In Isaiah 62, all these things my hands have made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I look. This is the one I delight to honor. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. So if you really want to become humble, you treasure Christ and you tremble at his word. You hear it, you bring it in. See, trembling is a posture of acceptance. Like I'll hear it, I'll obey. We don't have to have a consultation or I give you directives, but I hear it. And what it does is it makes you, you know, it, you have to have a, a, a tremendous amount of strength to be weak in all the right ways. You have to have a tremendous amount of strength to, to talk to others and delight in them. And what it does it lets you move into the world in this blissful self-forgetfulness. You know, we're moving into, you know, in one sense, kind of social media has only been around for about a decade, half a decade. So we have no idea what effects it's doing on us. And one of the things I think is really important for the church to lead the way and think about is, all right, what is healthy engagement, especially for children, with things like social media. So think about I, what does it mean that probably most people 20 years old um, have been immersed in pictures of themselves their entire life. So what does it mean by the time you're 15, you've probably seen 150,000 pictures of yourself? It's like, what does that do to a soul? And uh, we have, so we have four children, you know, six, five, two, and one. And... Uh, one of our girls is just explosively, uh, you can debate which parent she got this from, but she's so <laughs> joyful and so like explosively exuberant um, about seeing other people. Um, she's still at the age where she gets so excited when I come home. So I often will just step out the door for a couple minutes and then come back just to kind of have, you know, just to experience the, ah, daddy. <laughs> And just an explosive joy. And she's always been that way her, her whole life. And, uh, but we noticed when she was about two, there was one of her favorite things in life and can do it for hours is just to scroll through pictures on the computer. 
you know, now we have, we have 10,000 of them, so it can take a whole weekend. And she'll just smile, and then she'll look at them, and when she was about two, she would just have this explosive expression every time somebody came up, and it never got old. She says, ah, Mamie, and then she said, hi, Mommy, Daddy, Paca. That's what they call my dad, Grandpa. And every single person just like this explosive. But we, we noticed the oddest thing is when a picture of her would come up, she wouldn't know who it was. So just like, Baby. And then at some point, she didn't really care. And, and, we, and so we would just have kind of fun with this and kind of show her different pictures, and then she'd come up. And, and in one sense, she's not that way now. But there was this brief kind of sweet moment of utter self-unawareness, if that's even a word. And I remember we'd watch, and we'd do the cycle, and I'd look at her and smile and say, do you know what that is? Like, that's sweet, it's cute, it's funny. It is 100% grass-fed, all-organic, free-range health. That is soul health. Not even being aware. And I'm so sad because in one sense it's gone. And the power and the beauty of humility that Christ wants to cultivate in you is to uproot the, the, the stains of, of pride in your own heart to bring you back to a place of childlike health. And if we can get your soul there, you can have a joy that no circumstance, no criticism or critique can ever touch or taint. You can have a stability that cannot be stolen or taken. And that's the beauty of Christ in us as we have our character molded and shaped to him. So let's, let's end there and let's take a few minutes to pray and ask the Lord uh, to make these things true in our own hearts. So Lord, we thank you for your word and we pause now to confess that we are all proud men and women. And we live among, in a land of proud men and women. But we ask that you set us free. Set us free from the uh, obnoxious, continual comparing and calculating and consuming others and, and not loving them but using them. We ask that you help us to set us free. And I pray for everyone who's entered this room. There's so many manifestations that pride can fuel, so many symptoms that it can generate in our own hearts. It can make our hearts anxious. So I pray for the anxious this morning, set them free. It can make us envious. Pray for the envious this morning, set them free. It can make us timid. Pray for the timid, set them free. I pray for those who um, are in situations that uh, either at work or different relationships where they, they know they're just being used, that they're just being consumed. And I pray that you would break that power of pride that someone else is, is exerting over them and set them free. We praise you for the cross. We praise you for how it levels. And then we praise you for the resurrection power to then build up. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. You know, one of the unique things about Esther is the whole book is structured around 10 different banquets. So you get taken into the court of Xerxes and all of the political intrigue and all the things happen at these social gatherings and these banquets and parties. And one of the biblical themes that runs throughout the whole Bible is uh, you're looking for a king that can throw a celebration that brings life, not death. 
But all throughout the Old Testament, you see in the New Testament with Herod, like Herod throws banquets that end up bringing death, not life. And yet Jesus is the one. That's why Mark um, compares Herod's banquet where John the Baptist dies versus Jesus is feeding the 5,000. Because here's here's a king who comes and provides a life-giving banquet, not a life-taking banquet. And every Sunday we gather and we celebrate the, the, the symbol of our king's life-giving banquet. That he gave his life so we could have ours. His body was broken so ours could be put back together again. So here at Trinity, um, we have four stations. The one in the back will be gluten-free if you have an allergy and you come. And we practice the intention method and we take the wafer and dip and let this be a symbol of the feast that he provides to bring life to his people. So once our server's in place, you come.
time of offering. And during this time of offering, we do two things. We offer up our, our gifts of finances back to him because we celebrate that the God who gives to us gives through us so lavishly. And so as the ushers come forward, I invite you to participate in the offering in that way. But I also invite you for the second part of offering to offer your life back to him. And so I invite you to pray and search your hearts and where the Lord is leading you to give your life back to him, offer it back to him as your spiritual act of worship. So take a few moments to search your heart before the Lord in this way. Thank you. 